Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers. I'm your host, Jeremy J. Fissette. On this episode, we get to meet Kristen Hirsch. Kristen is best known as the singer, songwriter, guitarist of the rock band Throwing Muses, who have been releasing albums since the mid-80s and have a new one out this September of 2020. She has also released numerous acclaimed solo records. Kristen has also become, in recent years, a celebrated author, releasing two books of narrative nonfiction. In this talk, Kristen and I talk a lot about her various musical projects, her various authorial projects, and also her crowdfunding, which turned a lot of heads when she began it about 10 years ago. We also get into her opinions and philosophies on the creation of music, writing, and art. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. This is me meeting Kristen Hirsch. Robots are not taking over as soon as they think they are. <laughs> I know. I was just talking about that the other day because I saw someone talking all alarmist about how the robots are going to take over. And I was like, you clearly don't use technology that much. I know. There's like one in the grocery store now that thinks they're like a one leaf is a mess and it alerts the whole store. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a while. <laughs> So that was so that was quite a puzzle, but I'm glad that you made it. <laughs> Thanks for figuring it out. It was not yeah, hard. I, I thought it was easier, and then I looked up how to do it, and it seemed so difficult. So I'm glad that we made it work. <laughs> no, this <sighs> is fine. You're here. I'm here. We're in a meeting. We can hear each other. Who knew? Yeah. And uh, where are you holed up right now? I'm in Encinitas. California. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm in Connecticut. So my uh youngest son is a pro surfer. So I'm just here as a mom. Yeah, I can record in LA, but um that's as close as I get to having a life other than Bodie's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really nice. All his friends call me dude. Oh, <laughs> that's adorable. <laughs> that sounds that sounds great though. That sounds lovely. <laughs> it is, yeah. We live in um, Little Tijuana, which okay. is, you know, cooler than where the douchebags live. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys? Uh, have you guys been there for basically this this whole pandemic time? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. no, I, not. Literally, I've I've had my apartment here, but uh, I've been in uh, New Orleans and New England. Oh, okay. Recording with different projects. Yeah, it seems like you've but stayed pretty active despite the global pandemic. <laughs> I know. Well, I majored in virology and immunology, so I've had a different take on this the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> You're just I sitting there. <laughs> I, I'm obsessed with viruses. I, 
I appreciate it's not everyone's hobby, but um, right. yeah, I, I, I kept my life going and it was not bad timing because I had just come off a couple of years on the road anyway, which is when they start telling you, lay low because nobody gives a shit about you anymore. <laughs> so this is I'm the sure that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't sell, you can't keep selling tickets. You got to disappear for a while and that's when you go in the studio. So I have felt busy. I finished the Muses record. I'm halfway through a 50 foot wave record and starting a solo one, but that sounds a little hyperactive, you know, when <laughs> I put it like that. So I'm, I'm thinking if things don't pick up soon, I'm going to realize, Oh no, this, this really did stop here in your track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess eventually if you're touring for a couple of years, you might start looping around again and be like, Oh, <laughs> I'm here again. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have a tour booked in April. Hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's an imaginary tour, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it could happen. Things come true all the time, right? Imaginary yeah. things. I mean, April, maybe, maybe by then you'll be able to do something. Yeah. I don't know. I hope so. I'm on the final edit of a book that took like four or five years and yeah. Um, I've, been, I've been seeing your uh, your occasional tweets about writing a new book, though, so that was exciting. Oh, yeah. Well, they asked for a book about raising four kids on a tour bus, hmm. which, you know, it's a good sentence. But <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you've seen kids, right? And you've seen buses. They're impactful, but not necessarily an exciting story mm-hmm. to type <laughs> and but because it spans 30 years necessarily uh and i was allowed to take out all the boring parts of my life it's fucking cliff dive of a book it's oh. way too exciting <laughs> well, that's actually the opposite problem because when i gave it to the editor he said this is easily the weirdest book I've ever or strangest <laughs> book I've ever read. I'm like, dude, that's my life. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah I mean <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean also like the the two books you've you've put out already are so entrenched in real life that if they if they don't know what they're getting already, I mean, how are they so surprised? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a nice way of putting it. Real life is very um it's a fucking thrill ride we don't like that you know i've heard people say before that real life is like it's it's sometimes it's better than fiction because it's the stuff that you didn't make up that's so exciting of course yeah and i think on my so my first book one of the editors had said um um a few about a few of the stories I told, this isn't believable, meaning that I should change it. <laughs> like, well, it's not that it isn't believable, it's unbelievable and it happened. So yeah. you tell that story, <laughs> you don't tell the other story. <laughs> he just thought people would think I was lying. At what, and my answer was, well, I'm not. Yeah, so what are you and supposed to do at that point? Yeah, and the first book was just about one year. So this one is exhausting. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> well that's that's a good way of that's a that's an interesting thing too because yeah rat girl we should say the title of your first book um yeah it's one year and then 
your second book, um, Don't Suck, Don't Die, about about Vic Chestnut, what is that, maybe 10 years? Right, right, yeah. So, yeah, you're kind of getting larger and larger in scope, I guess. <laughs> or lazier and lazier. Like, to make something <laughs> out of a year is harder. <laughs> maybe that's true, maybe. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get back to, to the books in a moment, but I did want to start off since, um, it's happening so soon. Um, your band Throwing Muses has a record coming out in less, less than a month, right? Yeah. I think cause today's August 12th. This won't go up obviously on August 12th, but today's August 12th. And I think it's September 4th that Sun, right, yeah. Sun Racket comes out. Um, mm -hmm. so did you, did you finish this before the pandemic or, or was it just at the beginning? Uh, I, my work ethic is, um, I don't know of a better word than selfish. <laughs> I, I love working so much that I'll push everything to the, <laughs> beyond the deadline and then beyond again and again mm -hmm. and again to the point where the record was done. And I was losing sleep over one song, which is the single we put out yesterday, Frosting. I just said, I just didn't do right by this song. I I saw my drummer doing something that he didn't do. So all my overdub responses were just something that isn't there foundationally. And this is my bad. I shouldn't have been responding to something that was never going to come to fruition. I should have been responding to the party put down, but I didn't have time, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, this is why I lose sleep over it. So I actually went back into the studio in New England to save one song that was already on a record. <laughs> like, what was I even doing? But it's music. I don't have a relationship with the attention or the business. My only relationship is with that moment of inspiration. And if I let it down, I have failed. So in my head, I was saving a song because now it would exist, <laughs> even though theoretically no one was ever going to hear the right version. <laughs> I spent a week in the studio trying to save one song. And then um, Fire, which is a record company I signed with after saying I was never going to sign with another company because they, they make it so that I no longer need to earmark listener support funds for promotion, distribution, mm. and production. So their role has been very kind and kind of off to the side and just making sure that all my listener support funds go towards sessions. And here I am wasting a week in the studio <laughs> with their money. And Fire said, well, let's just make that the version that is the single that is on all the streaming services. And so essentially this will be the version and anyone who buys the record will have heard at least both, which is such a huge musical kindness, something that is unheard of in um, the recording industry, which is essentially about, you know, fashion and the bottom line and, uh, now I can't even remember what your question was. <laughs> me, me neither. <laughs> but, that's, but that's okay. Yeah, um, so it was during the pandemic that I was finishing the Muses record. Right. Uh, and then we started the 50-foot the wave. 
record that I'm in the middle of. So the version that you were that you were tweaking is the one that we can stream now, but the older original version is going to be on the physical record. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I, it's, I'm essentially an ad for not buying a record and just taking a free <laughs> version. <of the> <laughs> or you're an ad for buying a record because now there's this like secret version of it that only people who buy it will have. <laughs> secret suck version. <laughs> But yeah, then, okay, so now you're working on a 50-foot wave record. Um, so you have so many irons in the fire, it seems, at all times, which is, I guess, good because you say you love working. I but. am shameful. Yeah, I just, <laughs> if there was no point, I would have wasted my life. I have spent my entire life just being obsessed with sound. And it's not what you're supposed to be. I think I a human's response to passion is investment. But this industry is the opposite. They, they want lack of investment. They want lack of quality. And, and I'm not, not down on anything, really. I'm saying what they sell has nothing to do with music. And that's not something people necessarily realize. Mm. But there's very, very little music in the music industry. It's, not what it is it's like trying to monetize and then corporatize prayer you take the instrument out of the listener's hands for their money and you are flying televangelism and that's what we have and uh so my argument is usually play your own music <laughs> you yeah. know that become musically literate and no one will lie to you this way with sound because what they're selling you right now isn't music it's fashion and it's flirting and it's manipulation and it's a mimicry of passion which is an insult to your humanity use your humanity to play passionate music yeah and there is something sort of really non-commercial about what what you guys do especially with throwing muses i mean sun racket is yeah. it, I, I mean it is a rock record but it also doesn't really sound like what you typically expect from a rock record yeah or anything i mean i go into the studio on the first day of every session knowing exactly where i want the kick drum mic placed you know what mics i want to use on what amps and um what the room like is going to be uh, all what the overdubs are you know what i want in to complete the sonic spectrums like the upper mids is all like colored in my notes are extensive and insane <laughs> and i'm always completely wrong which i love like i mean like have you ever even heard a record wrong <laughs> like <Yeah>. totally obvious <laughs> <laughs> and not because there's anything wrong with the sound, it's because the songs are not supposed to listen to me. It's like my children, they they listen up to a point, but if I tried to turn them into something they weren't, a part of them would either die or be missed or be redirected, and that's not parenting that's not facilitating anything so i if i'm honest in the studio and, and i'm just facilitating then 
I got to call myself on all those ideas. Ideas have no place when it comes to this almost id that mm. spills out of the speakers. <laughs> so you have all these ideas going in and then they just sort of get upended. They, they do. Uh, and that's uh, what I call production. Yeah. You're just trying and erasing and trying and erasing and trying and erasing until you have a kind of rough hewn sculpture out of the lump of clay you walked in with. And then you let it really flower because at that point you're in Dow and you, you, there's no, nothing's going to pull you out of it. There's no distraction that could take you out of that. Yeah. That relationship with the music. It's just real vivid at that point. And it can leave you with a lot of problems like on this record trying to bring together I don't, I don't know they're like 10 songs on it or something the last record had like 40 songs <laughs> i know i was actually going to ask about the fact that you went from the longest throwing muses record to what i think is the shortest throwing muses record this is the songs again i'll just tell you what to do and right half of these wanted to be heavy rolling hypnotic dirges of all things that's not throwing muses and then the other half were the uh, as you know, e equally strange for us, kind of music boxy little detailed things, and mm. you just gotta listen and say, okay, that that's the kid you want to be. I'll help. I'll pour your cereal. <laughs> Go. <laughs> yeah, it makes me it makes me think of something that you talk about a lot in Rat Girl, and then um, a little bit too in in the Vic Chestnut book is that that idea that you can't really plan music. You can't really plan songs; they just kind of happen. Um, yeah. And it remind it reminded me a lot of that hearing you talk about your process um, a little bit. And then also speaking of the single "Frosting," the uh, the Rolling Stone article had you had your uh, quote, the, probably from the press release, but the quote um, saying of the album: "All it asked of us was to commingle two completely disparate sonic vocabularies, one heavy noise, the other delicate music box." Turns out we did not have to do much. After 30 years of playing together, we trust each other implicitly, but we trust the music more. And that sounds like what is really going on, is that you guys do have songs going in, but then you kind of just let them take over and you let these songs come to you guys in their whatever form they want to take. Exactly. And it is worth dressing them up. I, I hate to admit that as a purist, I tend to reject style as insubstantial, as if style and substance are um, sort of mutually exclusive orientations. But if the style comes out of the substance, it, it, is, it does seem to be genuine that there's a reason we are incorporate. You know, we are in linear time. And I'm, I love the idea that music is timeless, but the way we share it with each other seems to be of a body of a time it's that's production and yeah it is removed from the moment of inspiration but it's a response to it mm -hmm. yeah that makes me think of the um i'm sure she wasn't the first to say it but <laughs> an Ani defranco lyric where she says people used to make music as in a record of an event of people making music in a room and so even though it is timeless, it is also a document. I mean, it's it's a living, breathing document of a specific moment that you guys 
whoever it is did in a studio somewhere at some point. I love the studio. It's a palette for me. I get utterly lost there. I've lived some of my best moments lost in that palette. Um, mm. But a record is not part of nature. <laughs> you know, music. <laughs> I'm from Georgia, and they, you know, on the porch every night. The musician in the family, if not the whole family, is playing for the sky. The music just goes away. It wouldn't occur to anyone to capture it necessarily. And say I was on a flight from the Canary Islands um, with um, a priest who was coming from an African village. He said the music is spontaneous. They mm. go from the inspiration is the breath that it's supposed to be. And then it comes, it goes in and it comes out and they all feel it at the same time and they let it go. It's not captured. Now I have to go back to church and face these hymnals that they're dead. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, there's an analog in my life, which is <laughs> why capture it? This is wrong. Yeah. I should be letting it go. And this is the, you know, luckily, there's a lack of ego in my work environment so that everyone can hear when the music body walks in the room and when it doesn't, if it's a zombie or if it's stupid or if it's dead. <laughs> we all know that honesty is close to inspiration that flies in and out. But it's a capturing, and I don't know what I think about that. I think it's a beautiful capturing when you don't lie or manipulate. But I think the ultimate goal would be for people to play their own music and let it go. Well, is that kind of what you get out of playing live? It is. Hmm. But that's not what the audience gets out of it. I, I do think that is like a circular breathing exercise. Um, they, their presence matters and it's something that happens between us there it isn't exactly a practice space event mm -hmm. um and i i allow for that group high to be something that we all share the fact that it's a stage has only been co-opted by people who like spotlights and tap dancing in them very recently you know the music business is not that old the stage facilitates the listening process, that's, that's all. So we're comfortable as shy people who are only there to focus and play right. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that no one is expecting us to act like fucking rock stars that, you know, that we're against that shit. So hmm. I, even that, a stage performance, I absolutely, I got to allow for as much as shy people don't want that to be <laughs> important. <laughs> The circular breathing ritual is valid. Yeah. I just think we're headed somewhere. This isn't necessarily the foundation of music and it isn't the end game. You know, it's not really where it's going. It wasn't that long ago that the Carter family drove around trying to own songs. And before that, the songs weren't there to make money. They were there to be sung by hundreds of faceless voices and altered by each one and owned by everyone and no no money which is 
It's why 50-foot wave is the hippie commie exercise that it is, trying <laughs> to give music away and everyone volunteering. And um, the first time we did 2 million downloads, Billboard magazine called all upset, like, who the hell are you? And when they figured out that we hadn't charged, <laughs> they said, oh, never mind. Like, we don't count that. And I said, oh, you no. fucking hell. <laughs> I knew you counted money. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Not that you count anything else or measure impact, but I know way to out yourself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, now I know I did the right thing by leaving Warner Brothers and right. staying invisible. <laughs> so you have fifty foot wave. You also have um, a slew of of solo records. You just released um, in twenty eighteen your last solo record, Possible Dust Clouds. Um, I'm curious about sort of, I don't even know if, if this is a fair question, but I, I'm curious about the sort of differences between a Chris and her solo record, a Thoring Muses record, and a 50 Foot Wave record, because they do intersect in many ways, not least of which that um, Dave of Thoring Muses drums on a lot of your records, and then 50 Foot Wave has, has Brendan. So is, is there a difference for you? Is there, like, is, there, is there a way that you would write a song and you'll know which project it's for? My answer to this is true and stupid. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Okay, I write 50-foot wave songs on my Les Paul or my SD. Music songs on Kelly or my Strat and solo songs on my Callings. <laughs> that's the only difference. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there is... It's like a... The penultimate moment of choice. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, within the writing process, I could make a mistake when I reach for the guitar, maybe, but mm. the song itself knows how it will best flourish, almost like what town it wants to live in. Mm. But my drummers tell me it's a flawed system. And by <laughs> that, I mean they say it's stupid. <laughs> but I've been doing it for a while. And, uh, you know, but. Bernie gets all of them, and I play a lot of the bass parts if he doesn't show up. It's, <laughs> it's pretty loose as far as personnel. Um, and and now, like as you say, it's nothing really sounds that different. Fifty Foot Wave developed into a band that's very um, detailed. It was supposed to be. If you can't play it drunk, don't play it at all. <laughs> and that didn't last very long most of our stuff is not available on Spotify, but we have a record called um, Power and Light that is just a half hour of continuous music. And that's pretty much what we have sounded like ever since. You just can't, we were a live band or are a live band. You just don't just sing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the recorded versions of things, it, streaming services don't carry them. And we're just trying to see how far you can push existing outside the recording industry and um so you probably haven't heard what the band really sounds like but it is it's pretty much encroaching on muses territory <laughs> and yeah i mean i heard the i think i heard the first 50 foot wave record i think that's oh, okay <laughs> um yeah it has it's very similar to the muses but for me it's fundamentally different its bones are different and um 
my voice is different. And but now solo, my last solo record was really noisy, and I took Fred from the Muses and Rob from Fifty Foot Wave out to tour it. So yeah, it's more like a stable of um, actors. Yeah. <laughs> well, how'd you like to do this today? <laughs> yeah. So the world, the worlds but, have sort of intersected over the years. Yeah, and yeah. It's mostly me. I just don't want to admit that it's the sound of having no friends more often than not. <laughs> well, are Throwing Muses records, are they any more collaborative in the writing process than a solo record would be? No. <laughs> in fact, I'm in the studio for three years and then the boys come in for three days. Oh, wow. I know. It, well, I know on, on some of your solo of records, <laughs> on some of your solo records, you have played every instrument. So you've kind of gone from both extremes. Yeah, and I find that if I tell people that men played, they will think that it's more solid. They'll hear it as more pro and less um, emotional even, which mm. is pretty lousy, but at the same time, I understand. And if, if you're talking about the music industry, women have not been represented. But the marketing oh, no. teams get behind this kind of, broadway version of female musician it's like actor model dancer singer and so <laughs> what they're going on is that information so it's not that they're truly sexist the response is sexist <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i'll just say like all right as far as you know men played on this and and they did but not on much and right. it makes them like <laughs> music more so yeah that's fine i got no ego no skin in that game <laughs> i just want the music heard I remember, um, I mean, I was, I was too young when Sunny Border Blue came out to hear it when it came out, but I remember um, reading reviews of it later and a lot of them were sort of like, and she plays every instrument. Like they were like, they were like so, <laughs> you know, gobsmacked by that. Like she plays drums and the trumpet and the bass. And it was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I, I get, I'm just a spaz in the studio. It's like, oh, yeah. And so I just run in and do it because I want to hear it right now. Right. <laughs> but, and, you know, it's expensive and it's a pain in the ass for other people to <laughs> come in and learn the songs. And I know the songs <laughs> in and out. And um, my problem really is that I love playing drums so much that I don't stop. I'll pretend that I'm not getting to take mm -hmm. two o'clock in the morning just so that I can. And keep playing drums yeah. in a snowstorm. Just one more you know, time. <laughs> Chris, you got it. <laughs> what a bed. Well, you say it's expensive, but as you kind of alluded to earlier, you do get um I would I would think quite a bit of funding from your um crowdfunding. I feel like you were one of the earliest people to sort of subscribe to that, um, the Strange Angels program that you have set up. Um yeah, we when, when did that when did that come to fruition? I want to say 10 years ago. Okay. I wrote an, an essay called Art Versus Commerce, and we based cash principles on that, like a manifesto almost. Mm. And it was humbling. I don't like asking for anything. The fact that people have to come to a show, get out of work early and find parking and get babysitters and then pay seven bucks for a warm beer and <laughs> I just can't believe they do it that seems like a lot to ask of somebody and then 
to ask them to support recording as well, I wasn't sure they would understand my value proposition when working outside of the industry because I am no longer asked to suck. And mm. I, I mean, I can't tell you, I was never going to do it again. Warner Brothers was a nightmare and I felt so morally obligated to no longer participate in an industry that denigrates both music and women. They wouldn't let me go. I had to give away my first solo record for my freedom because I just refused. I sucked twice and I'll never do it again. It's not that I'm anti-pop. I think I have a lot of respect for pop. It's other people that don't. They, They use that as a, um, as an excuse, the rationalization for kissing up to the rich white guy and the lowest common denominator. And I won't let music do that. And I won't, I'm not going to do that as a woman. So mm. uh, it's not going to happen. So music would have stopped um, for them. Uh, my bands always play. Music is just an ongoing stream. You know, I'm not going to yeah. stop swimming in that stream the idea of publication and attention is uh, it can be a a sticky one. I want to share, I think, because the songs don't love living in my closet (laughs) on a four track, Um, but I'm not going to share a degradation and an insult with people. So the fact that our listener supported, I think is even more impactful then they realize they they just think oh music now but um, it's quality music now it's substantive music now instead of limping along and playing along with something that is that is just so wrong and so lim- limiting to the human faculties hmm. that we're trying to bring about. So was was Crooked the first album you put out under the the crowdsourcing? I should know that. <laughs> I feel That's like I remember right. it was because I think when you released Crooked along with the book that came with it, um, I feel like that was something that people were talking about, the fact that it was crowdfunded. Uh-huh. And I, and I kind of think that might have been it. <laughs> yeah, it might 50 foot wave might have been before that, but I don't know. Oh, really oh, oh, okay. That's probably true. So then we were the was... first to be what you want. Band. okay yeah okay that makes sense maybe that's before i don't know i'm making stuff up but <laughs> um crooked was another i didn't feel like i had quite risen to its occasion production wise and fire let me remix the whole thing recently which i probably would have done anyway and then just shoved back in the closet in the studio <laughs> <Like> this <laughs> must be done <laughs> well was and that fire... the uh was that the record store day release yeah, I think so. Wow, yeah. you're good. Well, I, I have it, that's why. <laughs> oh, well, it is much better now. Um, I felt like I didn't quite honor the material, and that's such poor timing to, you know, I just escaped <laughs> the industry in my own words, and I wasn't wasn't doing right by it. But it's great now. I really like it now. <laughs> we got to play some of it in this last tour. Well, that's important. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. To have Rob and Fred playing on it was really touching. 
because that's another one where I played all the instruments and mm-hmm. you know, a couple of drum parts went down. I was like, sounds like dire straits. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> and so this gave me a chance to go, oh, no, this is what the song was trying to do. And I wasn't listening. Right. Um, so why did you like, how did you even become uh, or how did you even start doing solo records? Because Throwing Muses began, um, I, I think the first album was 86. I want to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's then, when my then, first son was born. That's how I remember it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you guys were pretty prolific for a while. Um, but then throwing music sort of started having longer and longer spaces between albums. And then you started up a pretty um, prolific solo career. Was it, was that just the way it worked out or was there some sort of a other reason why you began doing those solo records? I did the first solo record to try to get out of my Warner Brothers contract. Mm. Um, they ex- finally agreed to let me go if I gave them a solo record. And so I never made a penny off of that. But uh, that obviously wasn't a point. It's just another <laughs> reason that I knew I was doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're going to starve my children, you asshole. Yeah. Anyway, um, the muses uh biggest record was at the same time university and so that's when our world tours started being two three years long mm. and continued to be so so the what people call hiatus is actually us out in the world <laughs> <laughs> never stopping working and i had 50 foot wave which was we were on the road like 200 days a year and you know, interspersed with solo projects and then books and book tours and book, you know, literary festivals. When you're only in someone's town once a year, they assume you work one day a year, but you're in everyone else's town the other <laughs> the rest of the time. And um, the uh, the material has to be written and rehearsed. There's a lot of behind the scenes and different projects so that they're always overlapping Mm -hmm. so the work never actually stopped and I agree in principle with the idea that uh, music that doesn't suck should be heard but we do a lot of playing that is not for publication it's for I don't know for breathing or something Mm. practice is different practice is when you learn material that exists, this is music that is just for music's sake. And it isn't something that you then uh, commit to recording and releasing and going through a record cycle with. It's more like a meditative process of how does music happen in the best way. And a lot of that is not public. It's, It's not about any attention at all. You know, when musicians start a song, real musicians, and they're not that many <laughs> in the music business, real people are closer to real musicians, you know, with real lives and that active state of vivid engagement that is mimicked in song. And when you begin a song together, your heartbeats line up. It's like, I'm not making this up. This is. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sciencey, as groovy as I sound. I was, like I said, an immunology major, <laughs> and um, that's what you have to keep. You have to be rigorous about that, and 
also about your vulnerability as a player. You cannot ever show off or rely on your um, chops, I guess. It's hack, and it's it's not presence. That's, that's what it is. We're looking for presence when we play. And so not everything belongs on a record sold to people and played in front of people. Music is just a non-going uh, endeavor. Hmm. So were the solo records um, sort of just those like sort of benchmarks, but in between them, you and the muses and all your projects were still going, just not for real like public sale. Right. Yeah. And even the uh we did uh something that they call uses because it says throwing uses on every on the cover you can only see the uses <laughs> um and we tour i think that's a double album we toured that for years but you know people don't really notice <laughs> yeah well especially then i mean now people might know because everything is so recorded and everything is so documented and the data is there but right then, then maybe uh people weren't they were like oh i wonder it's been a few years they must just be doing nothing i haven't heard anything exactly yeah we just went home <laughs> <laughs> and then i have the two other projects that are always going and um and adding books to it just it kind of meant i had no time at all anymore yeah and that's good it's lucky um but also, when I became listener-supported, I finally had the opportunity to make the records, uh, I want to say perfect, not that they are, but I try. Mm -hmm. And that takes years now, which is why I have overlapping projects to keep stepping back and then digging into it again, making sure that they they stand up. It, You know, it used to be like filming a sitcom. You, <laughs> you go in and then it's done and you're leaving going, wait, what happened? And I never got that part right. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I won't let that happen anymore. That's part of the suck I'm hoping to ease out of our <laughs> lives. Yeah. But it reminds me of like any sort of artistic endeavor that I've ever taken. If you take a step away, especially with writing, if you take a step away from it for a while and go back, you really usually see it very differently. Sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes it is like, oh, okay, I need to fix all of those things that for some reason I was blind to the first time around. And you have the time exactly. to do it. Exactly. And, and then you do it again and mm -hmm. you question some of the changes. But you, so you need a lot of time. This is why I take a long time to write books too. As you say, like, how are you supposed to get all those words right? <laughs> <laughs> so many. <laughs> And but that's a good segue. But I love into it books, though, because you oh, know, sorry, what? No, I was just saying that's a good segue into your books because for for a couple decades you were known as a songwriter and a singer, and then suddenly this memoir comes out um, that you said tracks one year, um, if I remember correctly, it's the year leading up to and then maybe just past the first Muses record. Um, why did you? What turned you on to writing more long form? Uh, usually it's not on purpose when mm. I do something it's because, um, I'm nice. <laughs> <laughs> Someone suggested it and I didn't know how to say no. So I had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it 
a handful of journalists approached me offering to ghostwrite my memoir. And I thought, what the hell's going on? Like, <laughs> must have been a story that came out that made my life sound interesting. And But I'm so nice. I, like, not in a good way, like in a doormat way. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm doormat, you know, Georgia girl nice. And so I just kind of said, that's really sweet, okay. <laughs> Not knowing that what they all meant was endless interviews and talking about feelings. It just sounded like a nightmare. One guy threatened to move in with me for a while. And oh. so then management, who were all excited about there being a book, realized there's no book because Chris is too shy to talk to people. <laughs> so they said, since you won't talk to anybody but yourself, you have to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and Penguin, you know, I, I don't know, what's it called with books? Signed? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm remember. not sure, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I signed with Penguin before it was even done. And um, it sucked for about two years. It was clever. And then just the next two years, it, it wrote itself. And this is a book that already existed, essentially. But that's how hard I had to work to make sure that not a single um, inauthentic moment went down. Because it, it won't help anybody. I have no reason to publish a diary. Who wants to do that? Unless it could help some kid in an insert your passion here way. Yeah. And now I see it all. I see all the rat girls at our shows and they all, you know, they got little backpacks with the book in on them. <laughs> <It's really cute. laughs> but uh, I don't know. It would have been a wildly different book if it was ghost written. It doesn't, that's, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that should be or really could be ghost written. I know. Well, it was my idea to use the diary. They didn't want to do that. It would have been really boring, I think. The diary was oddly esoteric, which was the book that Penguin signed. And uh, one of the editors seemed so baffled by it. (laughs) I mean, admittedly, she was like 12. So she would say things like, I don't know how old she really was, but I'm old. So she seemed really young. (laughs) He would say things like, how come no one could find you just because you were living in your car? He was like, well, because it wasn't the Batmobile. We didn't have cell phones. (laughs) Yeah, and the cars move. I mean, you weren't always in the same place. (laughs) Um, That's so funny. I used that information as information. Like, oh, so this could confuse somebody. And I I don't want to be that person. Um, we were driving around on tour in the UK, uh, and I was going plowing through the manuscript. And the people I was with said, "You know, Chris, you're swearing a lot. <laughs> Why don't you do this when you get home?" <laughs> because the book was a beautiful thing, and yet it was prose poetry. And so, oh, anyone totally, who- yeah something different is going to be saying what the hell is going on the whole time they're reading i don't think readers are generally like that but editors can be because of the lowest yeah. common denominator thing they think all readers are stupid um and so 
And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't want to swear anymore. I don't want to be mad anymore. Mm -hmm. We were in James Harriet's town and we, we pulled off and we went to his house and I stood on his doorstep and thought, this guy lived a vivid life, a humble and funny life. And he gave it away in a thoughtful fashion and he didn't confuse anybody. So, you know, stop your swearing and go back <laughs> and make sure that you're not going to confuse anybody, leave anybody out for no reason. So Rat Girl, if it were a better book, it wouldn't be as good, I suppose is what I'm saying. Well, if it was if a more like typical book. In or a if it were more atypical, if I left it in the prose poetic form, it wouldn't have engaged as many people on this plane. You know, and I was living on this plane, diary, it happened here. So I yeah. gave on that front, and I think it is more shareable for that. Well, I mean, it is it is relatively esoteric in a sense. I mean, it it does. It's not a surprise the way you write it because it, the way you write lyrics is is sort of similar. But reading it, I never, I was never confused. You know, it was just like it was sort of poetic prose at at least. Right. That's good. I, that means I found a balance. I think the <laughs> the first book might have confused more people. Um, and then you try to bring it back and it gets clever and then you try to bring it back and it gets crazy and you know, you just bring it all over the place until it is wearing a nice outfit and <laughs> feels <laughs> good about itself. <laughs> so then your second book, um, I want to mention brief, at least briefly before we have to go, um, Don't Suck, Don't Die, Giving Up Vic Chestnut. Um, first off, why the giving up part? What does that mean? That was the hardest thing to wrap my head around. Um, I've had a lot of people die in my life, and this is the one I'm still confused by. I still reach for my phone to call him. He's still in my phone. Mm. Um, the fact that he left a vivid play of himself all over my soundtrack makes it even harder for me to figure out what is a dream and reality. A mm. lot sort of shifted on its axis for me that day. Um, and when UT came to me asking for the book, I just said no over and over again. I'm, I'm not qualified. I'm not going to write a biography of somebody, you know, cry the whole time. It's not worth <laughs> it to me. And they said, we don't want a biography. We want your book. And like I said, I'm kind of doormat nice. And eventually I said, all right, so what is this article you want? And how many words? And they told me how many words. And it's like, that's a long article. <laughs> <laughs> they said, yeah, we want you to write a book where you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I could do that. And I bet it would be funny because Vic was funny. And I it bet it would funny. be about his life instead of his death. And it was. I almost left his death out. But I yeah. thought since he he chose that himself, I had to honor that. And um, mm -hmm. it's almost an aside. It's completely different from the rest of the book because his death was completely different from the rest of our time together. You know, I was at his funeral alone. Everything else we did together, we did together. And 
it's very, it gets extremely zen at that point. And that's what letting go is. It's, well, what do I do mm. with all this open space? And all you can do is realize it. Now Vic is open space. Was it hard to write this book? It wasn't. It was wonderful. Oh, it was. That's good. I write books that I start getting up early. Um, you know, after coming off tour, it can be hard to get up early. And then I get, I crave the book and I get up earlier and earlier until I'm just sleeping a couple hours a night. So I'm lucky they're coherent at all. But <laughs> it was so fun to go back to hanging with Vic, who made everything fun and miserable and angry and hilarious and light. <laughs> um, so he essentially wrote the book, obviously. It's pretty much in his voice, not mine. But um <laughs> The only hard part, like I said, was you get to the end and it's just like now and now. I don't I don't wanna be here, I don't wanna be now. Yeah. But he was right. It is open space. Everything has to be taken that way and everything has to be killed off similarly. Mm-hmm. Well, 'cause it is it is a really funny book. Um Thank you. It is, it is um, also, though, like if I could imagine going into a book like that, maybe not knowing who he is or who he was, um, it might read differently. But knowing, kind of knowing the end before we got there, it, it was it was funny and it was interesting. And, and because it's not really a like a biography, it's not like a typical biography. It's really an account of who he was and who he was with people and who he was with you. Yeah, if I write memoir, I'm agreeing to stick with what I see, and that's what I saw of someone. Yeah. So I'm not quite the narrator. He is really. I'm just watching him narrate yeah. a story. Uh, you know, oh, well, a decade anyway. I I just I had to put something up on Twitter about t-shirt i didn't even know we had a t-shirt of that book such a strange <laughs> thing to have but <laughs> i didn't know any book said t-shirts <laughs> nice t-shirt but they're on sale right now and so the the lady who runs my website said can you tweet something about it and we'll just sell off the rest of these and i couldn't get the t-shirt image to format on twitter <laughs> twitter's formatting is all fucked and it's different every single day and so i just put up a picture of me and vic and Burst into tears just all of a sudden after all these years. Yeah. Because it was the last time I saw him for one, and I didn't really get to finish that. Mm-hmm. He said goodbye, and we were supposed to start recording something together and tour soon. <laughs> and he only said goodbye kind of over his head, just waving at me. And <laughs> um, so I didn't. You know, grief is okay when it's pure, but when it's messy, it's messy. And it was yeah. an image of a um, messy grief, and that's not as good as I made it sound in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the uh, reverence that you have for him uh, comes across in the book. That's good to hear, because some people just thought he was an asshole after reading the book. <laughs> I was like... No, he wanted to be an asshole. That's really yeah. different. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't know if the two are mutually exclusive. 
(laughs) But, um, do you have any, do you have any fictional aspirations or do you think that's something that you can, like, do you think you're someone who can only write, um, true things that have happened? I do have a, um, brain problem with fiction, but I'm trying (laughs) to get past it. It might be like a spectrum kind of wiring thing. I have half, well, maybe three quarters of a novel written. Uh, but I feel like I took most of it from the truth anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people do that. You're a writer. You would know. People do that yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do that. Or at the very least, um, maybe like inspired by traits of people you know. Like there's some scrap of it that's based in real life. I was at a literary... Uh, like a week-long literary event with Colin McCann. Do you know who that is? Irish writer. Oh, 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 oh yes, yes. Um, and he said something similar. It's like, it's all walking in another man's shoes. So um, how how you learn to do that is living here. Hmm. And because I was saying, well, why, why would you lie writing a book? <laughs> it's not lying <laughs> and I was like yeah why would you engage in something fictional because I you know I read a book and I think well it wasn't really a big car crash you just made that up <laughs> why <laughs> and that, for a week so like he couldn't let go of that well really I, we were in a bar and it was like the first night of this week-long event and he pushed a cocktail napkin across the table to me and there was a quote written on it and he said, who said that? And I was like, dude, don't do this to women in bars. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, you tell me who said it? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, the CFP. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> he does do that to women in bars and I was the first to ever be right. Oh. And so for his, for the whole week I had his ear he was the national book award every time he posts anything so i (laughs) i mean nobody gets this kind of information and it was all beautiful and he is incredible and now i think fiction plays an incredible pure fiction like a real a truth spoken in this language like real music as opposed to the music everybody listens to (laughs) It could be the highest art because it is pulling dream from reality and reality from dream and giving it away in very musical form. You know, writing is obviously rhythmic and melodic and it's visual. You know, it's an imagistic form. It's just that you need someone with a heart as big as columns to pull it off. I don't know if I have one. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure. I'm sure you can pull it off. <laughs> but that conversation, you. yeah. <laughs> but that conversation about lying—that I think a lot of people kind of um, have a sticking point with fiction. Like, why would you make something up when you can tell something true? But I think you can make something up that's true. You know. Absolutely. We do every time we go to sleep, right? That's true. <laughs> I um, was on a panel, a memoir panel, at another literary 
thing. And um, this, uh, <laughs> the first woman on the panel to speak said um, she referred to memoir. Is it a memoir? So <laughs> after that point, none of us could use the word memoir because you're either calling her on that <laughs> or yeah. you're imitating her and we didn't want to do that either. So, <laughs> um, there's this whole panel of people trying to say what, nonfiction and journaling, like using any term. <laughs> using <laughs> <memoir>. Personal. <person. laughs> um, but I remember it for that reason. I've sat on a lot of panels that I... I guess they were forgettable because I forgot them. But I remember this one and the guy next to me said, we write nonfiction because no one would believe it otherwise. And I mm. think that's why I've stuck with memoir. This <laughs> 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 life is so ludicrous and so enchanting and so exciting and vivid that if someone thought for a minute that I was making it up, I would lose a layer of appreciation, I think. Hmm. But they were right. They said, you write nonfiction, you're going to be ghettoized. That's a, it's a ghetto. It's not called real writing hmm. because they think it's not creative. You're just writing something that happened down. And I was like, yeah, it's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as a, I'm also an English teacher. And as an English teacher, I can tell you, kids, no matter what age they are, they could be 14, 18, doesn't matter. If you tell them to write anything nonfiction, they have so much trouble with it. So really? if anyone, yeah, what? at least in my experience, because I think because people are somehow programmed into thinking, you know, creation, creativity equals fiction. So, yeah. you know, I've taught creative writing and we have whole, a whole unit, a whole quarter on nonfiction and it, it's hard for them that they think nothing interesting has ever happened to them or anyone they know, and they can't pick a story and they don't know how there could possibly be characters and plot and Wow. It's, it's, it is sort of, it's a, it, it's a programming, I think, that just occurs subtly throughout our upbringing. And I think it totally uh, speaks to the fact that nonfiction is creative. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. It's not just relaying information. I suppose you have to edit your own seeing. And that, hmm. that would be the trick. You're finding the storyline in all of reality right? So if right. you look at all of reality in front of you and you you can't find the line, maybe it's because there's no story there. <laughs> uh, it's possible that I've out stories. That, you know, I just covered 30 years, so if nothing cool happens <laughs> in my life, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> you could write about some time when you were like nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like pre-date, pre-date rat girl. <laughs> We all love prequels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I don't know. But um, I'm sure. I'm sure if you feel like writing nonfiction, that means that there's another storyline to trace. Yeah, I would think they'd be everywhere, right? Yeah, you just gotta, like you said, you just gotta find them. And if there's not a story there, then you look elsewhere. It's just like songs. You, it, the work yeah. tells you what to do. If you start telling the work what to do, it's smaller than you, and who needs that? Yeah. <laughs> well i think that's as good a note to end on as any um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for doing this sweetheart I'm thank you thank you so much this has been an honor for me to get to speak with you i've been um 
listening to you for for many years. So this has been really That's cool. very kind of you. I appreciate that. It's not a given, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably I'll probably cut this out, but um, the the Grotto is one of the most important albums to me. No kidding. Yeah, yeah I mean, I found it. World, it's like says the same thing. I, I kind of did. Oh, really? <laughs> that record. Yeah, I went back to it because I am going. So it's not just like a midnight moment. <laughs> That's so nice it kind of is though. <laughs> it is. It is. But it's so peaceful. Not many people are that peaceful. Good for you. Well, I well, I don't know what was wrong with me when I was like 15 when I found it, but um, <laughs> but huh. it was uh, it was one of the first albums I f- I think that I found when I was like first really getting into music. So I'm sure that also has something to do with it. But it has stuck with oh, me. Oh, that's lovely. I like to hear that. It certainly wasn't promoted. <laughs> it's nice that you found it. Wrong. Truthfully, I truthfully I'm not sure how I found it now that you mentioned that because that is true. But yeah, I did find it, was, it. I found it somehow. That's great. I hope they find the people that need them. You know, if it's medicine, I hope it. I know it's not for everybody, for sure. But I've always wondered if you find the people that need to take it, because you know, how yeah, could that be yeah. in the hands of a marketing team? Yeah, so it's, it's true. not. Maybe there's a resonant quality that has its own energetic. I'd like to believe that. Yeah, that's a nice thought. A better thought to leave the interview. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Well, thank you again. This has been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. And you. You take care. I hope we get to speak again. Bye-bye. Nice meeting you. (laughs) You too. Bye.